This is work that by doing it once in the center with the support of center member organizations who are contributing dollars, you know, real resources to, to allow us to do this work. We're doing that work once. We're doing it comprehensively. You know, we're doing it not as a sort of a side project between our day jobs. This is our day job. And consequently, what we're able to do is release resources that are well-documented, well-thought-out, available in machine-readable formats and people-readable formats. Fundamentally, I look at that as saving the community you know, thousands, tens of thousands of hours that they would otherwise have to spend doing that work. That is Richard Struess, director of the Center for Threat-Informed Defense at MITRE Ingenuity, talking about the good work his center performs for the entire cyber community, work that just happens to have culminated with some other breaking news in the world of cyber this week. There is a definite thrust on the part of many parties now to engineer our cyber programs in a threat-informed manner rather than by simply complying with frameworks. The implications are huge, and Richard is here to discuss them along with Jonathan Reiber, Senior Director for Cybersecurity Strategy and Policy at Attack IQ, and John Baker, Director of R&D for the Center of Threat-Informed Defense. This is a very compelling conversation with some very knowledgeable folks, and I think you will enjoy listening in. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Great to be here. Howdy, partner. Thanks for having us. All right. We got a howdy. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. All right. So why don't we start with Richard? I'm just going to go in order of Hollywood Squares on my screen here. Tell us just a little bit about your background in cyber and a little bit about your day job. Uh, well, I'm the co-founder, along with John, of the, of the Center for Threat-Informed Defense, uh, a collaborative research and development center. Um, been at MITRE for about uh, four and a half years. Before that, I was the chief technology officer at what was then known as the NKIP at DHS, uh, Cybersecurity Operations. A heck of a background. John, how about you? Yeah, I've been in cybersecurity for about 18 years now. I actually started out as a, as a developer working on a vulnerability scanning tool. And I uh, have been involved in a bunch of different work at MITRE over the years. Uh, some of that was supporting the CVE and supporting the open vulnerability assessment language, trying to bring standards into how do we look at and describe vulnerabilities. And over time, I have had the opportunity to work with Rich to co-found the Center for Threat-Informed Defense, where these days I'm really focused on advancing our research program with our participants. A background that's going to lend itself to a great show, I'm sure. Jonathan Reiber, last but not least. Great. I started working in cybersecurity about 12 years ago. And I, I entered the U.S. government focused on counter-extremism in 2009. And that was right around the time the U.S. Cyber Command was being stood up. And so I wrote the first and second national cyber defense strategies of the United States in 2010 and then in 2015 and served as a speechwriter to Deputy Secretary of Defense Ash Carter as well as Chief Strategy Officer for Cyber Policy in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So there you have it, folks. Three backgrounds well suited to the conversation at hand. But Jonathan, you've got to go ahead and tell us a little bit about your day job as well. Oh, yes, of course. My day job, which is probably probably the best job I've ever had. I, I write and speak and research on matters of cybersecurity and national security. And my two of my closest partners are here on this podcast with us. That's beautiful. Guys, thank you so much. I want to I say this for the record. 
one heck of a panel we've managed to assemble here. I'm very grateful to have all three of you gentlemen agreeing to come out to the show. So let's dive into the topics at hand. Jonathan here, I'm going to start with you. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, a.k.a. CISA, CISA, I've heard it pronounced both ways, is part of the executive branch. And just two days ago, as of the time of recording, we're recording here on a Friday. This was just released on Wednesday. The Binding Operational Directive BOD 22-01, Reducing the Significant Risk of Known Exploited Vulnerabilities, came out. And what this BOD does, for those who have not read it yet, is it outlines 290 known vulnerabilities. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a milestone in that the government outside of the CBE database itself, uh, which I know to only be sort of semi-government anyway, has never issued directives not based on frameworks or specific actions, but rather on the vulnerabilities themselves, right? This is this is a new twist to me. This is a new pivot. And I think this is incredibly significant for the cyber community. Seems like a critical pivot to me. Jonathan, what do you think? It's a wonderful, wonderful development, I think. And it reflects a trend that I've seen in cybersecurity over the last decade, which is really around prioritization and streamlining resources to make the most of the limited resources you have to make the biggest difference. And we have two great thinkers here on, on the podcast with us today to talk about the meaning of a threat-informed defense. And the timing of the, the Binding Operational Directive came out two days, two business days after research came out from the Center for Threat-Informed Defense mapping the CVE framework, which is a, a MITRE organization, a catalog of vulnerabilities, to the attack framework, also under MITRE. And so we're going to talk, we're going to talk a lot about that today and, and what that means and why prioritization is so important. But from the CISA standpoint, for the Binding Operational Directive, there's 290 vulnerabilities in the catalog that they've just announced. And this reflects a trend that I, I've seen since the Section 9 list was launched in 2010 with the publication of the Obama administration's executive order that really came out after the first legislative proposal that the Obama administration put out. This was to say, like, what is the most important infrastructure in the country that needs an element of protection? And it was a narrowing down to say, what are the companies that matter most? What are the organizations that matter most? And then in technology, began to see this movement towards what are the high value assets that matter most? What are your crown jewels? What are the things that matter most? Because you have such sprawling infrastructures and such few people to do the cybersecurity management process. And I remember Terry Halverson, who is the, the, the DOD CIO and a close partner of mine when I was in government. He, at one point in 2014, he introduced a list. He said, okay, we've, we're now tracking all the vulnerabilities that we have within the department so that we can know whether or not we've closed them. And I thought, gosh, this is like an immeasurable task. It's going to take forever. There's thousands. And so what CISA is doing right now, not just in this list, but in its movement overall and systemic risk, is to say, what are the most important things that organizations can do? And they've already been doing it from a threat-informed defense perspective. Like when they talked about solar winds, they used the MITRE attack framework. So this is a, I really see this as a very positive movement. And I just want to hand right over to John Baker to talk about the research that he led mapping CVE to attack. I love that. And John, before you dive in, I, I want to ask something like, was it really sheer coincidence? You guys mapped CVE to attack and what, two days later, one day later? Uh, CISA comes out with this whole uh, vulnerability-centric view of the world. Was that really coincidence? Yeah, you know, it, it, it really was a coincidence. Um, but I, I think, as uh, Jonathan was saying, it really speaks to 
the need to help organizations prioritize vulnerabilities. There are far more vulnerabilities discovered and reported each year than, than you know, most organizations could possibly hope to address. And we started out with this project as a research project in the Center for Threat and Foreign Defense. And what is great about the Center for Threat and Foreign Defense is we orient our research program all around the interests and priorities of our participants. And our participants are some of the most sophisticated security teams from, from really around the world. And some of our participants came together and said, hey, you know, we've got this problem. We have a really sophisticated threat intel team. They're heavy users of attack. They, they focus on and study adversary behaviors and how they evolve over time. I'd love to figure out how to bring some of that perspective of how adversaries actually um, achieve their goals into my vulnerability management program and start to integrate my threat intel teams and the knowledge they have with the knowledge that my vulnerability management program has, where we're constantly looking at studying and helping to prioritize vulnerabilities for us to address within our organization. And so that was really the catalyst for that project is trying to figure out how do we bring these teams together and benefit from the threat perspective and the vulnerability perspective to understand our risk. And so the outcome was a, a methodology for helping you understand uh, for a given vulnerability report, what are the actions that an adversary might take to exploit that vulnerability? And then once they've exploited that vulnerability, what is that going to enable the adversary to do? And that simple step there will allow you to then start to look at your defenses differently instead of fixating on do I need to patch that vulnerability or how do I um, mitigate that particular vulnerability? You can start to think about the behaviors that the adversary might exhibit around that vulnerability and work to put mitigations in place so that maybe you don't have to focus on that vulnerability right now because you have a mitigation in place that won't allow an adversary to exploit that vulnerability. So what we've done is we've started to bring together that knowledge and experience from the threat intel organizations with that of the vulnerability management organizations. I love that. Richard, you've got something to add there. Yeah. I, to my mind, this is a crystallization of what it means to do threat-informed defense. It's putting yourself in the shoes of the adversary and, um, and saying, wow, these are uncomfortable shoes, first of all, because adversaries all have very narrow feet. That's a fun fact most people don't know. But you know, to look at vulnerabilities, as an adversary does, to say, what is this going to help me do? How is this going to help me achieve my objectives, whatever they are? You know, and by looking at it through that perspective, all of a sudden, this undifferentiated C, or, you know, you can use CVSS scores or exploitability indices, but still, you still have this big pool of CVEs you have to deal with. All of a sudden, it becomes uh, sort of the mist starts to clear. Uh, and you start to see, okay, well, the adversary behaviors I'm most concerned about because I know I have the fewest mitigating controls or I know my detection is really weak in this area. Those are the vulnerabilities, if they're unpatched in your environment, that you really want to focus on first. So I, I think I think that idea of th this is a great way of putting the, the concept of threat-informed defense into, into practice. From my perspective with my with my day job, and I won't get into too much about what I do in my day job, but I'm a cyber practitioner too. And we've done an awful lot of mapping MITRE attack framework to the bigger frameworks, to your 800-53, to your CSF, to your ISO 27001, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of these folks that are coming at the problem from that 
framework conformity perspective now can completely reverse the gear and start with the threats themselves and work backwards and walk backwards into that. But by having mapped CVE to attack framework, what I'm picturing now is attack framework mapped to whatever, we'll say NIST CSF, for example. And and now you can go either direction on that spectrum. If somebody's coming at you from a framework compliance state, you can talk about it in real world, concrete, practical terms, as well as starting with the threat informed defense and walking your way back into what have we done in terms of compliance with the framework. Now that we've addressed these, we can check these boxes kind of approach. So to me, this is not just about threat informed and it's not just about this this big pivot, but it's also about being able to go bi-directionally now in that world. You can start with framework or you can start with threats and go either direction and, and make meaningful progress and check boxes all directions meaningfully and not just be checking boxes to check boxes, right? I, and I, I just had to interject that. So Jonathan, one of the other things we talked about is kind of the fact that there's this bipartisan stuff going on. But before we get into that, I see you've got your hand raised. Why don't you share with us your last thoughts on this one before we switch topics? Thanks, Alan. I like how you mentioned bi-directional. You've got, you go from the NIST control or you could go to the vulnerability and the Center for Threat Informed Defense actually published great research aligning NIST to attack as well. I like to think about the work that the center's doing and the work that we at Attack IQ are supporting and the kind of work that's that we're doing as well as reconfiguring how you think about strategy overall. And when you think rethink about strategy, you're rethinking build. You're rethinking everything about like like no one can start from zero with your infrastructure. You can't start from zero with your people right now. You inherit as a CISO, you walk into a job and you have to figure out what your inventory looks like. But what what you can do is you can say our strategy is going to start by, from the, from a threat standpoint. Mm-hmm. Who's trying to attack me? What are they trying to do? And what's their methods? And that's what this research is really about. Yep. It's a perspective that needs to be there. It's too easy, I think, if you're strictly based on frameworks and starting the strategy from that perspective, it's too easy to get lost in abstracts and to lose sight of what your priorities actually are, right? And to me, that's, that's, that's yeah. the fundamental thrust of, of threat-informed defenses. No, let's start with what we actually know the problems are. Um, but at the same time, from that strategic level, that bi-directionality, I think, is is there. I'm glad to see you guys. I didn't realize you guys had mapped attack to uh, CSF as well. I'm going to go <laughs> I'm gonna go download that after the show. Uh, okay, so switching gears, let's talk about um, a little bit more of maybe the political landscape behind all this. This is bipartisan, and this is the part that's making me the most happy. You already mentioned some changes that have happened under the Obama administration. Under the Trump administration, we saw some more executive orders and, and other initiatives come out that were definitely pro-cyber and, and pushing the ball down the field. And now under the Biden administration, we see a new one as well. But there's also been a bipartisan bill that got introduced in the House uh, John Katko, Republican from New York, and Abigail Spanberger, Democrat from Virginia, have the Securing Important Critical Infrastructure Act, uh, which is designed to empower CISA a little more, I think. But also, I think one of their primary goals, as they stated it in uh, the description of the bill, was to prioritize meaningful benefits to SICI owners and operators, and here's the key phrase for me, without any additional burden. And I think this ties into what we're talking about with that bidirectionality. The idea that you can start threat-informed and take some load off the person trying to, the entity trying to protect themselves is, I think, one of the thrusts of this bill, right? That's kind of the idea is like, let's let's let CISA get more uh, more capability here. Let's empower them more, but with this goal of reducing burden on the entity trying to actually secure themselves. And I think threat-informed is doing that. I think threat-informed takes you from having to be forced into a compliance world to sit there and say, I've got uh, 108 controls in CSF and I've got to meet them all and I've got some oversight. You know, obviously regulatory is going to be regulatory. We're going to have our PCIs and our HIPAAs and our FFIECs and all that good stuff. 
but but there's there's a burden represented with framework compliance, and I think that we're we're sort of making a subtle twist here, um, saying let's relieve some of that burden while at the same time still actually addressing the real issues. What do you think of that one, Jonathan? You know, I'm, I'm Congress is a, a beast unto itself, and I'm I'm not someone who should wade into determining what Congress is going to do, and I'm, that's not why I'm interested in thinking about this issue. Just to be clear for mm-hmm. for listeners, I think. There's, there's, there's the politics and then there's the actual story of what's trying to happen. And we've seen this trend, as I mentioned earlier, over the last decade to say, what are the most important things that you have to secure, right? If you're an organization, you need to identify your high value assets inside your infrastructure. In some cases, folks don't even know how their applications are mapped together and how they actually interact. So you need to look and say, like, what does the inside of my castle actually look like? Where are my crown jewels? How are they connected? By analogy, for a country or for a planet, you need to know like what are the companies and agencies and organizations that matter most for the functioning of the global economy, for the functioning of the nuclear command and control infra- infrastructure, like whatever subsection of the economy or human behaviors are, you need to identify what they are and you need to move towards securing them. And that's the positive storyline that I see in this bill and in, in the movement that CISA is doing, there's a guy at CISA named Brandon Wales who ran the analysis initially for the Section 9 list to say, what are the most important companies? Whether you're thinking about ransomware and how to ensure that you're defended against ransomware or whether you're trying to think about what, in, what security capability to buy, you, you, we know the tactics that the adversary is going to pursue. We have the data in front of us. It's in MITRE attack. You can go across and say, these are the tactics, these are the sub-techniques. We are a part, what we're arguing is that there is a, there is a, a movement afoot within the cybersecurity industry. It's a, a, a change in how we think about building our defense capabilities. And it starts with the threat. And whether it's compliance, whether it's cloud, whether it's vulnerability management, what the work of the Center for Threat Informed Defense is doing is putting the threat at the center, which is like a terrible pun on my part, and saying everything else emanates out from, from threat behavior. Mm-hmm. So... Let's pivot. Let's pivot over to to John and Rich to talk about like what that means from their vision standpoint. I think it'd be really interesting. Before we do that, let's hear a really quick word from our sponsor. You're in charge of cybersecurity at your company, but do you really know what's going on with your security controls? And are they actually working to keep you safe? The problem is when controls fail, they fail silently. That's why you need Attack IQ the automated insights platform to continually validate your defenses. Better insights, better decisions, real security outcomes. That's Attack IQ. Check them out by visiting attackiq.com. And thank you, Attack IQ, for sponsoring this episode. I just stated earlier that MITRE has mapped the attack framework to NIST CSF. I spoke incorrectly. It's actually mapped to 800-53 wanted to issue that clarification very quickly. John, over to you. Yeah, uh, thanks, Alan. And and yeah, that's exactly right. So um, actually, one of the first projects that we tackled in the Center for Threat Informed Defense was uh, developing that mapping between 853 and ATT&CK. And very much like the CVE mapping work that we we talked about a minute ago, you know, our goal there was to make it much easier for organizations to understand how the controls in 853 could help them protect against real-world adversary behaviors, and then kind of flip that around, as, as Rich did for us a little bit ago. Think like the adversary. If you're worried about this kind of threat, 
what controls can I put in place to mitigate those threats? And it, it's basically connecting our knowledge of adversary behaviors based on open source Intel reporting back to the security controls and capabilities that uh, we all leverage and use to defend our organizations. There's a bit of a theme in some of the research that we've done in the center uh, that, that builds on that. Uh, Jonathan kind of alluded to one of them there. We've mapped uh, the work between attack and 853, but we've also gone and started examining the native security controls of major cloud platforms and tried to connect those back to the threats that they can protect you against. Um, and so what we've done first off is we developed a methodology and a rubric to help us understand and systematically map uh, the capabilities of Microsoft Azure to attack. So now we have a resource out there that can be used by defenders to understand, all right, I care about these threats. What controls do I need to put in place in my Azure environment? And where are their gaps? Maybe I need to bring in a third-party resource here, or maybe I need to be thinking about other mitigations to close those gaps, right? So now we've brought some visibility there. We've done the same thing and mapped out the control capability or the native security capabilities for AWS. Um, those are all up and available for the community to use now. Um, and we're about to kick off a project that maps the native controls of the Google Cloud platform to attack. We're going to have um, a suite of the security controls for major cloud providers mapped back to attack to help defenders understand how those capabilities can protect them against uh, real-world threats. I think yeah, I, so yeah, I think just taking a step back, the implication of this is this is work that by doing it once in the center with the support of center member organizations who, you know, are, are contributing dollars, you know, real resources to, to allow us to do this work. Um, we're doing that work once. We're doing it comprehensively. You know, we're doing it not as a sort of a side project between our day jobs. This is our day job. And consequently, what we're able to do is release resources that are well-documented, well-thought-out, available in machine-readable formats and people-readable formats. And fundamentally, I look at that as saving the community you know, thousands, tens of thousands of hours that they would otherwise have to spend doing that work. And I look at every hour we save a defender, wherever they are around the world, whatever organization, every hour we save them doing the stuff that, you know, like what we've done in center projects, doing these mappings, uh, we're giving them an hour that they can spend actually working against the adversary. Mm -hmm. You know, we, no one ever complains that their day job is too slow and boring in cybersecurity. Everyone needs more time. And so in some sense, we're a bit of a time machine. We're hopefully giving people through the set of resources. We're not creating commercial capabilities. These are not we're not creating tools that, that are competing with commercial products. We're basically creating information resources, some open source software that's really designed to be a, a force multiplier for cyber defenders uh, around mm -hmm. the world. I'll say this, as a practitioner uh, and now a vendor CISO, I've, I've been both. Uh, I have used the heck out of y'all's resources for years and years and years and years now in, in both of those capacities. I, I, think, it's, I think it's invaluable for the practitioners to be able to grab tools like this and start operating literally just right away, operating on, on the details of managing their shop 
And then for the vendor community, very often, um, to your point, there's a there's a time force multiplier there um, that that enables vendors to better serve the entire community. And I think both are fantastic. So, Richard, you've got another comment for us. Yeah, I just wanted, you know, you said something interesting, and it's absolutely true. You know, since the advent of CVE over two decades ago, I think the community has gotten used to MITRE, you know, creating valuable resources. But, you know, up until about two years ago, that was really, you know, just, you know, whenever MITRE happened to have the, the right resources and the stars were aligned and maybe a government sponsor was, was exposed, you know, the work I did on Sticks and Taxi you know, was because I, when I was at DHS, you know, we, we were able to support MITRE to do a lot of that technical work. With the center now, we actually are turning over, you know, that we, we now are letting the private sector have their hands on the steering wheel of the bus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're coming to us with their problems, you know, whether they're a major, you know, Fortune 50 financial institution or a healthcare organization or a leading cybersecurity company like Attack IQ, they're coming saying, this is a problem I think we should solve for the betterment, not just of ourselves, but for the entire community. And then they're ponying up the resources to allow us to do that and then make those freely available to the world. So over the over the last couple of years, that's the big difference yeah. at the center. Uh, and that's why the, the rate of change, the, the number of new projects has accelerated greatly is because we now have a way of harnessing those private sector resources for the benefit of all. There's a turbocharger on the engine now. That is fantastic. And I'm going to say this about Sticks Taxi. I use that as a model for what should be happening in almost every other nook and cranny of cyber. In other words, anytime anybody talks about standardizing how some machine talks to some machine for some cyber function, I'm always like, look at what they did with Sticks Taxi mimic that, come up with something similar and let's get it standardized and let's get the industry to buy in. That's it's, it's my go-to comparative for those models every time. So also this week, just all these first happening. So you guys released the CVE to attack framework uh, mapping and then uh, CISA comes out with its 290 vulnerabilities. And at the same time, CMMC uh, version 2.0 dropped, I think all within three days of each other. And I'm still, as we speak, ripping through CMMC v2 to understand all the differences at a high level. They've gone from uh, 12345 to just 135. Uh, they haven't characterized five yet. Uh, there's some other critical changes. Jonathan, can you tell me a little bit about CMMC, what you've learned so far about it, and and maybe even hopefully tie it into this conversation we're having? With CMMC, I'm, I'm very bullish on CMMC. I've been advocating for stricter standards for the Department of Defense contracting community for quite some time. And I think many of the controls within CMMC map to NIST 800-53, the, te- the technology controls. They're, they're very closely related. So we at Attack IQ have mapped our security optimization platform to CMMC and to the NIST 800-53 controls to validate your cybersecurity control effectiveness. And that's part of the reason we do that. And that builds directly off the research from the Center for Threat and Foreign Defense, no doubt. Like that's that that narrative came from that research that we that we did with the team here. Because compliance is not equal security. Everyone knows that. Compliance, like I tend to think about compliance as like an abacus. And a bean counting situation and people who, you know, are really focused on wearing New Balance shoes and like kind of hip shorts. Whereas like what we're actually doing is saying your compliance only matters when you're when you're geared against the threat because the threat people tend to think of themselves as really cool. Right. That's like that's how let's marry these two communities and then you can measure your compliance effectiveness. So we want to give you real performance data about how well you're actually doing in your CMMC compliance by running the adversary against your platform 
and saying, this is what it looks like. Mike Gilmore in 2014, he was the former director for operational test and evaluation, DOD, released a memo. It, it was out there in the public. It says, look, our weapons platforms are vulnerable to the adversary. Our red teamers, and he would run a red team assessment once a year. He's like, they're just marching through. And so what we're trying to do for, for in all the national security capabilities that are out there for CMMC, but also for the banking industry, for anyone who has compliance mandates is to say, you can build the best cyber defense program in the world, just like a carrier strike group. But if you never take it out to port and you never exercise it, you never see how well it performs against the, the, the PLN, whoever it is you're running up against. There's no, I sunk your battleship alarm that goes off when your cyber controls fail. So you have to exercise them constantly. If you don't take them out, they're going to be like drunken sailors who've sat around and gotten flabby, right? Like go and test them. And so that's why I think it's really important that CMMC, there was some talk of it disappearing, which is a terrible idea. It's great that they're honing the capabilities now. All right. And we've got a, got a bit of an opinion there. I, I love that, though, and I'm in full agreement. Um, stricter controls. I was I was a vendor who was obligated to DFARS back in the 171 days when it was just, you know, simple DFARS in 171. And it never felt like it was enough. I always felt like it, it felt to me like, uh, I don't know, I, I always pick on SOC 2. It felt to me like a SOC 2 audit where it's really easy to check some boxes. Whether you've actually got the real security is a whole other story, but boy, you can check those boxes, right? So I think CMMC has been a big improvement. It's interesting to me that they've reversed a little from one to two. In other words, the severity of, of, of the requirements, I think a lot of people were already really charging down the 1.0 path, and now 2.0 has lessened some of the restrictions a bit. That'll be interesting to see that aftermath. But philosophically and fundamentally, we need it. It's there. It's there to protect us, and it's there to hold us accountable, and I, I want it that way. All right, so let's get some closing thoughts here. I'm going to start with you, Richard. Uh, anything we've talked about so far in the show today, uh, any closing thoughts you've got for the audience? Yeah, I think we all said the word priority or prioritization like 40 mm -hmm. times. Um, you know, ultimately, there's more work, more threats, more vulnerabilities, more everything than any one organization or person can manage. Uh, so I, I just encourage folks, to, to if they're not already using a threat-informed approach to cybersecurity, take a look at what we're doing. Take a look at the resources that, through the support of our members, we're making freely available to the community to try to get back some time in your day, to try to figure out you know how to save some time and, and how to actually bring uh, the fight back to the adversary and how do you change the game so we start to win a little more. But thanks, thanks for the time, Alan. I love that. Thank you for coming out. This has been a phenomenal conversation. John, what do you have for us? Yeah, you know, just kind of building off what Rich had to say there. Absolutely. Take a look at what we've done. Use it. Tell us what you think about it and help us build upon it. Um, you know, with our with our research program in the center, uh, as I said, we're, we're really driven by the interests and priorities of our participants. And we want to make sure we're solving the, the hard problems that are really helping the community. So, yeah, tell us what you think of the work that, that you find up on the center's website. Tell us how it's helping you or, or tell us how we can make it better or point us towards the, the, the hard problems you're facing. And uh, we'd, we'd love to, to, to help tackle them. So. I love it. So I'll tell you one of the hard problems I'm facing right now. It's, it's the reconciliation, the bidirectionality I got after, the reconciliation of everything coming from the top of comply with checkbox framework approach meets the realities of the rubber meets the road where the threats are, right? And getting the entire organization to embrace that model is going to be a bit of a challenge, I think, right? You can't you can't go to a, a, a board of directors and talk about, you know, here's my top 10 threats. Uh, not yet anyway. 
And I think that's a conversation that we have to evolve up to that level if we're going to be successful. So that's one of the challenges I see with it. Uh, Jonathan, how about you? Closing thoughts? You know, I didn't have any closing thoughts until you offered that point, Alan. And I think the, the place where I want to get the world to is to say, if I'm, if I'm talking to my chief executive, if I'm talking to the board, if I'm talking to Congress, if I'm talking to the public, I want to be able to say to those groups, we know that we are good in our defense against ransomware acts. We know that we're good in our defense against, you know, if the, if, if the Russian government comes at us in our energy infrastructure, we know that we're good against these tactics and we can prove it because we've taken, we've run emulations against the threats, the, we've taken a threat informed defense and we have data that shows how well we're performing. And that's where we want folks to get to. It's like a factual mm -hmm. assessment based mm -hmm. on data that says, this is how well we're doing. And that's what the threat informed defense that's what the Center for Threat and Foreign Defense is really pushing the community towards by focusing organizationally with research around the tactics that matter most to your cyber defense effectiveness. We've got a dream. We've got a vision. All we got to do is execute. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Thank you, guys. All three of y'all. I'm going to rattle off your names one more time and make sure I get them right. Richard Struess, Director of the Center for Threat and Foreign Defense at MITRE Ingenuity. Jonathan Reiber, Senior Director for Cybersecurity Strategy and Policy at Attack IQ, and John Baker, Director of R&D for the Center of Threat Informed Defense. Thank y'all for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>